It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Yeah. Mm. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an absolute pleasure to introduce to you the Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, multiple Adelaide Friends Festival, best show winner, magician, international keynote speaker, and all-round brilliant, loving, selfless, kind man, and he's a communication <laughs> coach as well to boot, Mr. Vin Jang, everybody. Hi. Oh, gosh, I love the intro. I feel like there's applause that needs to follow an introduction like that with your voice. <laughs> Maybe we could edit some of that in. It's an absolute <laughs> thrill to have you on the show, and I just want to extend on behalf of everyone watching, you know, massive thanks for coming on the show, Vin. No worries, mate. I'm happy to be here, and, and you're, a, you're a lovely human yourself. That's why I'm here. Well, thanks very much. That means a lot. I'm going to start out with a punchy question because okay. I was, I've was i been through your whole YouTube catalogue and I even found the channel that you don't even post on anymore. And there was, a video, yeah, there was a video five years ago of you talking about, this was quite early on in your career by the sounds, of you planning um, or when you had a down day, or you had a flat day, you would write a list of 20 f- names of really famous people that you wanted to meet. And you, re- and you wrote some names, like people like Seth Godin, and you really wanted to meet Gary Vaynerchuk. And that was five years ago. And I just want to know, how's that gone for you? The closest I got to Seth Godin was uh, I sent him a gift card for Penguin Magic, which allowed him to buy magic tricks because I read in one of his blog posts he liked magic tricks. And he replied to me and I was, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And Gary Vaynerchuk stopped pursuing him because it's not who I want to be. It's not who I want to become. I, I'm kind of, you know, our social media feed is like our subconscious, right? And I think you've got to be so careful with who you follow. Because for me, a long time, I, I emulated Gary Vaynerchuk. I wanted to be him. I wanted to do everything he was doing. And, and it kind of led me down a path of unhappiness. I mean, it brings him an awful amount of joy, the amount he works. But when I tried to emulate him and worked that much, it just brought me a lot of sadness. It just, it didn't bring me joy. I was, I was living very, you know, I, and I think I spoke to you this about, about this before, that the more successful I became as a keynote speaker specifically, the more unhappy I became because I was away from my family. And yeah, being away from my family, made me unhappy. So again, 
be very careful with the people you choose. I think the biggest mistake that I made was that I just looked for people that were really successful financially and fame-wise. And then I just wanted them to be my mentor. I didn't think about why. So I think everyone's got to keep in mind a really powerful Bruce Lee quote where he says, when the student is ready, the master will appear. So make sure you know what you want before you go ahead and look for mentors. Otherwise, you end up just picking the most financially successful person in your network or you pick the most famous person you can think of. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And I think the, you know, like they say, don't meet your, your idols, don't meet your heroes, which I disagree with massively. <laughs> but I think mm. certainly there's some truth to it when you are, if you meet someone that, that you know, purely financially driven and, and then you meet them and they are totally misaligned with your core values and your beliefs, like you yeah. just be, you'll be totally, you know, disenchanted with the whole thing really. But I think that the big mistake a lot of people when they're young make is that because they don't know what they want, they just pick, again, the most financially successful person in their network to be their mentor. I, I was a victim yeah. of that, Laban. I, I was a victim of that. I, I picked a property investor out of South Australia who was, who was an awful man, you know, and, and he influenced me in negative ways. And it took my friends to really snap me out of it and go, why are you hanging out with this person? You know, they're, they're not a good human. And... It was because I, I, I knew I wanted a mentor. I was starving mentorship. I wanted to be taught. I love the apprenticeship model. I can't stand the academic model. It's just not for me. Yeah. And so I always go from one mentor to another. I try to keep finding mentors. And I think that's a very big mistake. So make sure you have clarity on what you want first before you go out seeking a mentor. Because until you know what you want, you won't be able to pick the right mentor for you. Yeah, and I, I think that's why I've really latched onto a lot of your stuff Vin. and for the folks at home Vin runs this extraordinary masterclass of understanding communication and using your voice as an instrument and if you haven't done it or you know nothing about it this will genuinely improve your life to a factor that I can't even quantify at this point I don't know if a, a math algorithm exists at this point because it's it impacts <laughs> I'm, I'm being serious here when I say this. It impacts oh, thanks, every, every facet of my own life. It improves innocuous conversations with people on help desks that improve that experience for them. And so inadvertently, I get much greater, better outcomes from trying to get my electricity switched over or <laughs> following up on a grant or like someone at yeah. the shop gives you something extra and it's not, it's not the reason why you're doing it. But it's just this yeah. wonderful byproduct of pumping What's, value. Well, well, think about this. When, when you walk past the busker on the street and they play a beautiful song, you feel compelled to give them something, don't you? Whereas if you walk past a busker on, on the streets and they're playing terribly, you may not, you don't feel that, that kind of, that draw towards, oh, I feel like I, I, I want to give you something. And I think that, that generosity that, people give to you and that generosity that people share with you, they feel it because you're playing great music with your voice. I think we can use our voice to play songs that make people feel miserable or we can use our voice in a way that makes people feel pumped up. I mean, I'm, I'm here. It's 5, 5 p.m. I had a very long day. But because of the way you're using your voice, Laban, it makes me feel like you're waking me up. You're giving me energy through the vibrations of your voice. 
And whereas if, if I was sitting over here and you're like, oh, hey, then, you know, good to see you, mate. Uh, let's do the podcast. Let's get on with it, eh? Like you, you, you would suck all the energy out of my soul. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And whereas, whereas when you called me, boom, straight away, like your voice just, it just felt good. It, 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 it fuels me. People hanging just on that earlier uh, comment regarding the big names that we were discussing, because I think it's important yeah. to acknowledge some of the names that you have shared the stage with. And I, cause I, I thought that you might've even shared the stage with Gary Vaynerchuk at one point. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It was a, it was a gig in Utah and it was a basketball stadium. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How many people, how many people fit in a basketball stadium when they're watching us a, a talk? We, we had 15,000 people there. Is that your biggest yeah. ever gig, your event? No, my, my biggest gig was in Bangkok in Thailand, 27,000 people for an event called MDRT, which is Million Dollar Roundtable. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. And I forgot, I was so nervous at that event. I, uh, I had my fly down on stage in front of 27,000 people. And I remember it was, it was so awkward because when I walked out on stage, I could see a whole group of women in the first rows, goes, oh, and like they're freaking out because obviously my 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 fly was undone, and yeah, it just goes to show because I was so nervous. I went to the toilet like twenty times beforehand. It was it was crazy. Yeah. So I had to pretend to I had to use some sleight of hand to do my fly up without anybody seeing. <laughs> oh mate, that's a thriller. I think from. Um... I think we'll, we'll come back to this because it's a really fascinating thing for certainly me and I know people watching as well. But what was, what was the main driver for you to get into doing what you are doing now? The starving, I was starving fulfillment. So I had, you know, as, as a close-up magician, as a stage magician, we're making good money. I mean, at the Adelaide Fringe, when we were doing the Adelaide Fringe, we... Uh, one of the other magicians and I, within that month, we would make quarter of a million dollars in, in four weeks. And so, so money-wise, as a young man, it was, it was fantastic. You know, it, it just, everything was going great. But what I started to gradually starve was fulfillment. Because when I, when I do magic and I'm entertaining people, it's great. But the applause after a while felt empty because the magic that I was doing, I knew it wasn't real, but people acted as if it was. And people were clapping for something that I was doing that wasn't real. And then for me personally, I know other magicians don't feel this, but I do. It added a, another layer of this fraudulent feeling I was feeling. And so I felt like the applause, I didn't deserve it. I felt fraudulent and I just didn't feel fulfilled. And then when I started speaking because of an entrepreneurial award I won many years ago, haven't done anything that amazing since. But when I won that award, they made me speak multiple times and when i did it i was like wow at the end people come up to you and they go wow Vin, that was amazing and, and this is when i was terrible at it and i went wow this is an amazing feeling i i thought there was only a financial bank i didn't realize there was a fulfillment bank i've been trying to just make money with the financial bank and store money away there but i didn't realize in life there's such thing as a fulfillment bank as well so then man when i did this Laban, and I, I, I fell in love with it and I went, wow, I, I, I starved fulfillment, but I didn't know what I was starving until I discovered it. And how old were you when you, when you figured this out, Vin? <laughs> 27. 
So would you say that's quite young in the grand scheme of most people that you speak to figuring out their, their why? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think our why is a consistent thing that evolves at different points in our life. My why when I was 18 was no money, no honey, man. So I needed to make money. I really wanted to find a girlfriend. I really wanted to find love. My desires were quite simplistic at the time. And then after that, in my earlier 20s, sorry, that was my late teens, my early 20s, then I wanted to build a business. I really wanted to make money. And for a huge part of kind of my 20s, it was all about making money and building, you know, financial wealth and creating wealth. And then the next part was more having more impact and having fulfillment. So I think our why consistently changes and we have to give ourselves permission to write a new chapter when the opportunity arises. I think, I think one of the best things I've learned was that what makes a book exciting? What makes a book exciting is a book with many different chapters. Whereas imagine reading one book that was just one chapter the whole time, it'd be, be nauseating. But a book that is engaging is a book that has many chapters. A life that is engaging is a life that has many chapters. So at each chapter of your life, you may have a different purpose, a different why, and allow yourself to, to explore that as it changes. So what does fulfillment feel like to you? Because it took me till I was 39 to figure mm. out that I love doing this. I love mm. it. And it fulfills me. And if you ask me to, to describe fulfillment, Oof. it's a tricky one, right? Yeah, it is. How would you define it? <laughs> I, I, the only thing that springs into my mind, and I was ill-prepared to ask this, answer this question myself. I am too. That's why I'm asking you first. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I think it's a, it feels like a continual sense of either accomplishment or innate feeling that you are doing, you're on the right path. I can't describe it any okay. less vague than that. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'll give you my vague answer as well. I think for me, it's a feeling of, it, well, to me, it feels like it's an act of kindness and an act of selflessness, but also selfishness, because in doing the selfless act, you feel really good. So there's, there's kindness mixed in there, there's selflessness, there's selfishness, there's, there's generosity involved. And it's almost like every single good word you can think of, put it in there, mix it in. It also makes you feel like you're a good human. You feel like you're being a good person when you're doing this. I, there's my vague answer for you. That's, that's, this is a really good topic to think about. I mean, we talk about this thing we want more of, but it's so hard to define. I, I well, think that's a pretty good description. Well, I think there's more to it in that fulfillment often is only felt when you're doing something for somebody else. It, fulfillment, I feel, and I wonder if I'm correct or wrong here, but fulfillment usually involves somebody else. I mean, can, can you feel fulfilled on your own? I don't know. Maybe you can. You know, when you're doing something that you truly love and when you're doing something that you, you get a lot of happiness from, I guess you can feel fulfilled. So, yeah, but, but for me, speaking brings a fulfillment that you get when somebody else comes up to you and 
and shares with you the impact that you've just had in their life. Like when you tell me, when you told me the impact that I had in your life by you doing the masterclass, that made me feel incredibly fulfilled. You know what? I think it's also linked to you making a difference in this world. I think when you know you've made a difference in somebody's life, that feeling, the feeling that you mattered, the feeling that you changed the world in some way for someone, oh, it's like when you eat something you really love. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is, this is the most vague answer ever of fulfillment. So people are better off Googling this and they might get a, a, a more, more concrete answer. I think I think it's brilliant, Vin. I I think you. <laughs> I think to to describe something like this is a is a real challenge without having even thought about it. But I think you're right, and because the thing that I found so fascinating, the reason why I connected with a young Vietnamese guy from Adelaide, which <laughs> if you ask me to reel off all my Vietnamese idols or influences, like I think you might be it. Um, is uh, because there was a there's a guy in America who you would you'd know Steve Siebold the he's a, a major keynote speaker over there and he wrote this 177 mental toughness secrets of the world class and he talks about a lot throughout 177 of those about coming from a place of love and abundance rather than mm. a place of fear and scarcity and yeah. I think that's what you exemplify to me in my observations of, of everything you do, you pump so much value. And I know it's something you've been deliberately working on for a long time. I get a lot of that from my parents. I don't think I was naturally born that way. I think when I reflect on the Vin that was in his early 20s, I was a terrible person. You know, I, I think I, because all I cared about was making money. All I cared about was just how am I going to make a buck, right? I never considered other people's feelings. I never thought about being abundant. I never thought about being generous. I was a very selfish young man. And then my parents really helped open up my heart. They really helped open up my mind to the power of compassion and kindness. And I, again, just want people to know that what they're seeing is the result of so many great influences in my life. I could have very easily gone down the wrong path. I was hanging out with the wrong kids in high school and you know, some, of them, some of them reached out to me recently and, and these were kids that I used to be really good friends with that would go around beating people up, you know? And it was just so, so tragic to see because when they reached out to me, they shared with me stories of suffering, stories of no progress, stories of being trapped and... And it was frightening for me because I, I saw myself in them. I, I, I just looked at that and went, oh, man, I was so close to becoming that. And I was just so fortunate and lucky to have the parents that I have. Because if I didn't have my folks, mate, I, I'd, I'd be in the rubbish bin right now. What sort of parents did you have? If you, are, you, are you happy to share that with the... With the- yeah, yeah. My, my, I... You know, we often throw around the word unconditional love, but I moved schools five times, Laban, and I got in a fight. And, and the reason I got in a fight was because I got bullied. And then I was like, you know, fuck this. I don't want to be bullied anymore. I'm sick of this. So then I'd fight back and then they beat me up again. And so I moved schools and then I became an entrepreneur. 
and I cared about money now. And then I, I sold things to people for double the price. And then they figured it out. They could buy it on eBay for half price, beat me up again. And I, I'm like, <laughs> what? This is my fee. I'm the middleman. Beat them up. I, I put my mom and dad through heartache after heartache. I watched my mom cry night after night. And I went through a period where I just didn't care. I didn't care about how she felt. And to watch your mother, like now when I look back, it really breaks my heart that somehow that Neanderthal version of Vin Jang at 16 you know, lacked the frontal lobe of his brain. Didn't, how could you not give a shit about a woman that cared about you so much? And, and I, got, I have a lot of regret looking back, but that was a part of the process of me becoming the person I am today. Yet my parents loved me throughout the entire process. And seeing my parents go through health issues, not having enough money to send me to school, so then borrowing money to send me to these expensive schools where there were less bad influences for me there. And just coming home, disappointing them, they support me, they love me. Coming home, supporting them again, they support me, they love me. Crashing my car, nearly dying, coming home, they support me, they love me. I've never known love like that. And I, I don't understand how they could love a child that was so terrible to them. <laughs> I just, I don't understand because to me, I would have been like, I'm just going to beat the crap out of this kid and divorce him from the family. So my parents throughout my teenage years up until my early 20s, they showed me what love meant. They showed me what unconditional love was, which opened up my heart to help me show that kind of love to others. So pretty good people. They are, they are. You've shared some other stories in the communications that we've had previously and uh, would, would you be so kind as to share yeah. what, what they're yeah. doing now? Because I find this, this is extraordinary, so my, man. Yeah, so my, 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 my mom and dad, you know, they're, you know, we're in the Asian community and in the Asian community, there's a word called face. We care about face. And <laughs> Laban looks like he's on fire right now, but it's just because the conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. is really Give intense. me one second. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Your Zoom <laughs> is on fire. That'll do. <laughs> this guy is on fire. It's disguising the, the red cheeks of embarrassment. That's all right. I mean, look, I, do, do you want me to continue? Like, do you want to fix this first before we continue? <laughs> I reckon this is like Helen Hunt said, it's as good as it gets. What's an all, brother? What's and all. Yeah, yeah. That's all right, man. Tell your story. The story's too good not to share. Yeah, well, well, in the Asian community, like I said before, in the Asian community, there's, there's a word called face. You know, we really care about face. It's why, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a stereotype, but it's very real when you go to Asia. When you go to Asia, people all wearing Louis Vuitton handbags, Gucci belts, Gucci shoes. Branding is very important because face is important. You know, what you see is important, driving BMWs and whatnot. So my mom and dad weren't immune to this. They felt victim to this too. They, they cared about the car. They cared about the house. They, and I didn't know this, but for so many years, my mom and dad were suffering. And they were suffering because of the Joneses. And my dad and his brothers, my dad's got seven brothers, they built incredibly successful businesses and they made a bunch of money and, and they're, they're very well off. One day, my parents sit me down and say, you know, son, we, 
we want to give up our wealth and we're not going to give you and your brother any of it. And, you know, that was kind of shocking because everyone wants a bit of inheritance. But when they explained to me the reason why it made sense, they said, son, the, the most powerful thing we can give you is the mindset that you have and the head on your shoulders. It's not money. If we give you money, this money will burden you and this money will burn your potential. So instead, we're going to give the money to people who need it. You know, we're going to donate our money and we, we're giving the wealth away. And what we'd like you to do is support us in our next life decision. And my parents, they decided to become monks. And I was like, what? Is this, this is, a, is this a joke? What are you talking about becoming a monk? And, and my parents have been Buddhist for the last 10 plus years and they, they're devout Buddhists. And my dad said that, and I really want to share this. My dad said that, I'm sorry to hog the microphone, but my, my dad sat me down and my dad said, son, my dad goes, son, if a stranger comes to our house tonight, wants to live with us, what would you say? And I said to my dad, I go, oh, of course, no, dad. I'll tell them, no, you know, they can't live with us. I'm the man of the family. They might be a murderer. <laughs> and and my, my dad hits me across the head and goes, you're an idiot. I'd never say that again. 35 years ago, our family came to this country with no home. And the Australian people opened up their hearts and opened up their souls to us and gave us a home. He said, son, you can work your entire life in this life and you'll never be able to repay the debt you owe this country. Australia is heaven on earth. So my dad said, look, we want to use the house you bought us. We want to sell it and use the money to build a meditation center, to not push religion on people, but rather to teach people how to meditate teach people how to find peace in such a chaotic world. We want to let go of all material things. It's burdened us. I wish I could show you a photo of my dad now, but my dad now has four robes and three pairs of shoes and shaved all his hair off and mum's about to do the same. And they live such a simple life on a massive block of land and they're in the process of building the meditation center and people are going up slowly now, you know, after COVID-19. He's teaching them how to garden. He's teaching them how to meditate, how to breathe, how to find peace. And how to find contentment. Yeah. And how to, how to be okay with, how to find peace within chaos, you know. And even at this point in their lives, my parents are still teaching me the value of being kind, the value of being compassionate. Man, I just didn't think they'd teach me such a powerful lesson at this point, I thought all the lessons my parents would have taught me have already been taught. And they just came up with just this huge, powerful lesson. It was, it's made me a better person. It's made me a kinder person and a more compassionate person, for sure. Ben, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And I don't think I've ever heard of any similar scenario happening. My question is, you're a father now. You've got a three-year-old son. Mm. Uh, you're married. Are you worried that your son is not going to suffer enough adversity to then develop into this person? Yeah. Yep. Because I remember growing up, I had a lot of Italian friends who, the schools that I went to, there were a lot of wealthy Italians that went there. 
and Greeks. I was one of the very few Asians there. And quite a few of my Italian friends, they came from very rich families. Their, their parents owned wineries and everything. And like on weekends, I remember we'd go up to the winery and we'd, we'd um, go help their parents hunt rabbits with these little pellet guns and whatnot. And it was sad to see because so many of them relied on mom and dad's money. And I feel, and just, this is just my opinion, they were so smart. They had so many talents and gifts, but to me, they never, they, that, that potential was never tapped into because, they, you know, what for? I've got millions of dollars that I'm going to inherit. So I think that there's a danger in comfort. And I definitely think about that with my son as well. And, and that's why I think it's important to live modestly. I think that's why it's important. Like, you know, when I came to the US, first thing I did, let's get a nice car. Let's make sure we, we li like, cause I live in a penthouse and all these things. And so I've learned to let all of those things go. You know, I got rid of the nice cars and I, I got a van, minivan. <laughs> I got out of the, like the, the penthouse that I was living in. And now, now I live in a normal average suburban home. And I think by living a more modest life, it will never make my son like I, I think if I live too lavishly, it might impact my son. It might. But if I, if I live more modestly and more simply, then hopefully that won't destroy all of his desire for more. Do you know what I mean? Like one of the things that pushed me as an entrepreneur is I had nothing. I had nothing growing up. So to me, I think it's just making sure that as an adult, if I, I live modestly and simply, I won't take away the desire for him when he grows up. And also, I think it's different as well, Laban, in that adversity doesn't just mean hardships. Adversity can mean set a very audacious goal. You know, and, 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 and you can start, like I started on the bottom. My son probably is going to start here. But when I started from the bottom, I, I aimed for here. Whereas if my son started here, he can aim up here. And if he aims up here, that's going to be adversity too, because it's going to be hard to climb. It's the same distance, right? So I'd be pushing him to, to really shoot for the stars, but you know, won't force him, but I will, I will try to influence that a little. Well, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, I don't have any family yet, but Anna and I are working on it furiously, I can assure you. <laughs> and because I, I think about the same thing, and my situation is a little bit different in the sense that I, because I grew up with nothing as well, but I, then I also had the added la layer of complexity with regards to experiencing a lot of trauma in the form of mm. divorce and a lot of the, the negative sort of dysfunction that comes with legacy of dysfunction from generations before. And the beautiful mm. thing about the position that I'm at now is I truly feel like I've broken that cycle of dysfunction. Mm. And it's starting to infiltrate in, into the rest of my family and into some of my friends as well. So that, that's a really powerful thing and, and part of that fulfillment process. But as far as my kids are concerned, like it took me 39 years to figure this shit out and I'm still growing. I'm still yeah. developing. You know what I mean? And I am going to encourage that child to, to shoot for the stars but the only way I can really do it is by practicing what I motherfucking preach yeah. and lead by example. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then I think, I think adversity, we've got to remember, it's not, it's not just about going through a war. It's not about just experiencing poverty. I think adversity comes in many forms. For example, 
you know, like I, like you as well, I, I love exercising right now in my life. And that's a form of adversity, right? Because it's super hard, you know, when you're trying to do cardio for an hour, it's a, I hate it. It's like, oh, it's awful. But when you push yourself through it on a daily basis and you, you start to learn exercising is like brushing your teeth, just do it, just get it out of the way. When you learn to do things that are hard, and this is something that Joe Rogan preaches a lot, I really connect with that. So it's like finding things that are difficult for my son to do where he builds skill, you know, where he builds that endurance, where he builds that mental toughness. I think, you know, finding things like that, whether it's martial arts, whether it's a sport, whether it's, you know, some kind of game or I think there's many different types of adversity that you can introduce to a child that helps them build that rigidity and, and that, that, that grit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and this leads I mean, me to what... Sorry? Oh, sorry, yeah. No, I mean, like, you, you, I don't have to just move to a war-torn country to have my son experience all of that. You know, I think, I think it's, a, it's really about thinking about it. There are many different ways for, for that adversity to be introduced. Even as adults, we still need that. You, we, and again, in, in Joe Rogan's words, just find things that are hard. And the more hard things you do, that's adversity. Whether it's starting a business, whether it's starting a podcast, I think it's about overcoming challenges. That's what, that's a form of adversity, you know, that we can, that we can control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll share with you a quick story before I go into my next two questions. Yeah. Because this, this was a pivotal moment in my own life because I've been inspired by a lot of Joe Rogan's guests and I would attribute a lot of his guests to really changing the direction of my life, I think, particularly mm, from yeah. a health point of view. And yeah. Certainly, David Goggins, who, if you haven't checked out any of David Goggins' work, you must. Largely around the world's hardest man. And yeah. I, I am a recent convert to running, only really in the last two years. And I had a crack at a 100-kilometer ultramarathon in September 2018. And my progression from running, I'd gone from running five kilometers was my longest as of May of that year. I did a marathon wow. in, towards the end of May. I did a 50 kilometer in July. And then I entered the Surf Coast Century, which is a trail run, which is 22 Ks on the beach, right? Goes all around Anglesey and Torquay and all that. And the longest I'd ever run was 50 Ks. And it's like 2,200 meters of elevation. And it was like this weekend in September. It was the coldest, most miserable weekend. I knew nothing about electrolytes and nutrition and I had these just these runners on I didn't have proper like trail shoes or any of this stuff and I got injured about halfway I did my wow. uh, iliotibial band the IT band right which is a which is a glute fatigue issue right basically the mm. glute muscle either gives out and that that IT band which can hold a ton of weight just starts pulling in one direction the wrong way or something along oh, those lines. And, mm. and I'll offend a lot of um, mothers out there by saying this is the closest thing to childbirth that I think I'll ever experience in terms of the pain. <laughs> Not taking, um, although standing on Lego in, in the middle of the night is also equally painful. But <laughs> You've got to stop, otherwise these women are going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's more painful than childbirth, but like I, I did the first 50 kilometers in about seven hours. But wow. I did the last seven. It took 18 hours and 56 minutes and 47 seconds to complete the whole thing. And in the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced. 
but I had, we'd raised a bunch of money and I was determined not to let anyone else down, let alone myself. And my, my very good friend, Sam Skinner, who stuck with me for 50 Ks, like it was hailing, it was freezing cold. And because I was depleted of electrolytes, I couldn't regulate any body temperature. So I was like, had, had all these layers of clothing and I was just like, and I was hallucinating and it was wet and like, oh, it was extraordinary. But when I finished that, that when I crossed the finish line, then I burst into this explosion of like guttural emotion release, right? Mm. And then I realized that that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. But in the following days, weeks and months, I realized it was the greatest thing I'd ever done because I had pushed my pain threshold to a place that I'd never been before. And you talk yeah. about doing something hard, that revealed yeah. to me, I was like, motherfucker, I can do anything. And I yeah. attempted to run another one five weeks later in Queensland, <laughs> which you're supposed to recover for about Ooh. six months. And I got 41 Ks through and was medically withdrawn by a retired orthopedic surgeon who was about 85 years old. He said, mate, you're insane. And, um, and ran it again last year and uh, did it with bronchitis. So, like, I'm going to run it this year, hopefully fit. No. <laughs> Wow, that's that's a powerful story, brother. It's like the the Roger Bannister effect, right? It's it, it unlocks it in your head when when you when you think it can't be done, then you kind of believe it can't be done. But when you do it yourself, not only did it inspire you, I'm sure it has inspired the people in your community and your network and your group of friends. Well, I think yeah, you're right. People are like, if that motherfucker can do it, I can too. Yeah. Um, and I've seen you before and after photos. It's amazing, man. It's amazing. I look like a young, fat Dr. Phil. <laughs> no offense, Dr. Phil. Yeah. Oh, I think you should be down. offended. That's hilarious. <laughs> my, um, my question earlier was going to be, you've, made, you've obviously made some really smart choices over your life, Vin. How, also made and, some dumb ones. And, yeah. and plenty, of, plenty, plenty of silly ones, I'm sure. How important yeah. was picking your life partner with regards to the success that you've achieved at this point? Wow. Didn't expect this one. Very. <laughs> I, for a long time in my life, when I was in, when I was younger, I, I didn't understand the importance of truly showing the other person who you are, you know, cause when you, when you meet people for the first time and you know, you like them and you've got the lust going you know, you, you, you try to be someone you're not so that you impress them. And, you know, you try to, you know, you're always a bit better than you actually are. And, and then after you get comfortable in the relationship, the real you comes back out anyway. And then, you know, clashes happen. So for me, I went through enough of those that I went, okay, you know what, this next one, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to tell them who I am because a huge part of me is an entrepreneur. I mean, the reason why I love magic, Laban, is because I love solving problems and magic tricks are just problems that are waiting to be solved. So I, I love tinkering and I love problem solving and I'm addicted to that. And my previous relationships never worked because I tried to pretend like I had this great balanced life, you know, and that I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely finish by five and I'll be with you. And, and gradually I, I learned the value of just showing potential partners who I truly am and just getting rid of that, that mask right from the beginning, which helped me go through the filtering process very fast. Uh, a lot yeah. of the, the ladies were like, oh, yeah, we don't want that. You know, you're, you're, 
you're too too obsessive. And then I gradually cross paths with my beautiful wife now, who who loves me for who I am, and she understands me, and and she 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 amplifies the best parts of who I am and allows me to be me. It's it's so great, Vin, and, and like I've only come to this realization in the last eighteen months with my beautiful Anna, the woman who I knew that I wanted to meet my whole life, but was beginning to think that I was never going to. And and it wasn't mm. until I got to a point where I finally loved who I was and was able to be totally authentic about my sordid past up front, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly yeah. confronting situation when you've been as sordid as I have. Because mm. I like I, I had been on 151st dates over the course of about four years through Bumble That's and Tinder. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and they were largely good dates because I worked in recruitment for a long time. So I understood the importance of like qualifying the prospect effectively. Right. Mm. And I never got any of that connection or the chemistry or the fulfillment. And yeah. where I met Anna was in the streets of Melbourne, stone cold <laughs> sober on my way to a meeting wearing a similar snazzy jacket and a bit more colorful shirt. And I spied her from about 40 meters away. And I remember this like it was yesterday. It was a year and a half ago. And we locked eyes. And I, the only thing I can describe as happening next was I was struck by a bolt of lightning and picked up by an extraterrestrial force and levitated <laughs> towards this woman and plonked down in front of her. And I looked her dead in the eye and with a cheeky, chappy smile on my face said, excuse me, but you are stunning. And I wondered if you'd ever drink with me one time. And she said in this beautiful Russian accent, you're good looking too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a terrible rendition of her accent because she sounds way better than that. And, um, and then we headed off and been together ever since. And I am, wow. I've been 100% honest about everything. My, my, yeah. my mantra is, Ask me anything you want as long as you're happy to hear the answer. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think it's very special to have someone like that because often it's so easy to be in a relationship where, and I've, I've been in them, where you're, you're being somebody you're not because you're afraid of losing the other person. And you're staying in the relationship because you're just scared you'll never find the right person potentially. So you settle as well. You know, so I think there's many factors when you talk about a relationship and, and how it's had, had an impact on your life. And, and to me, when you, when you find someone that, because, you know, early on in life, I, I knew unconditional love. I, I was seeking that in my life partner too. I wanted someone who would love me for all of me, you know, and, and it took a while for me to find that. But finally, I found a woman that would stand up to me when I'm wrong and would, would tell me and question me. And, and I love that. I, I love someone who who speaks their mind and allows me to speak mine as opposed to, I don't want us to become just one person and I want us to remain individuals. That's what keeps it exciting. I want us to still be individuals, you know, and, and whereas I found all, all, my, all my other relationships, we kind of just compromise, compromise, and we just kind of blended into this one and it became, lack of a better word, it became boring. Whereas, What's beautiful is, you know, my wife's got a very strong personality. I love that. I've also got a strong personality and we respect that. 
we love each other for who we are so we can remain who we are so we don't become kind of like this yeah this combined version of boring <laughs> have you spent time at all throughout your time together trying to convince her to be a speaker because you're so passionate about the power of this <laughs> uh, i think once and she was like no and i was like okay that's cool <laughs> Yeah, she's, you know, I, I've, I've even convinced her of other things, but, you know, when she says no, she means no. So, okay, cool. Do you think that's a, just a certain percentage of the population that just are hardwired to not want to share their message? Well, I, I think everyone wants to share it. It's just each, pe- each person has a different way of doing it. You know, I think, I know people who share it via podcasts. I know people who want to share it via the stage. I know people share it via books or articles and blogs and people who just share it with their friends. So I think it's just who do you want to play your music for and how do you want to play your music on stages or in podcasts or in a book? I think everyone's just got a different method of delivering their music to a specific audience. And, and that voice is an instrument that you reference uh, in your masterclass as well. I've gone back through some old footage of you, Vin, and your voice has evolved yeah, absolutely. How did that happen? When I started realizing that your voice is an instrument, I think before I learned that philosophy and before I learned that, that lesson, I just used my voice unconsciously and I put no effort into it. And what I didn't realize was that your voice has the power, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, it has the power to energize someone. It has the power to to show empathy, to show compassion, to show kindness, to show love, to show power. And when you put no conscious thought into using your voice, then you're being ineffective at connecting with people. You're being ineffective at being influential and you're less impactful. However, when you learn that, you know, all of life is a stage, it's why I chose to call my communication course stage. When you learn that, whether it is, you know, you walk into a room and your son is there, you're on stage with your son. The songs you play will impact how he feels or your daughter or your parents. So the moment I realized that, I went, wow, okay, I want to use my voice more consciously to make people feel good, to make people feel loved, to make people feel cared about. Even right now, if, I, if I'm, if I, like again, if we both switch off our voices just for a second and we put no conscious evidence into it, imagine just listening to an entire podcast like this where there was just no energy. Just imagine. Delete. 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 But it's, but again, it's, it's just, it's that commitment to, I care enough about the listeners on this podcast. I care about, I care about you, Laban, and who you are. And I care about the people that are going to listen to this. I care about my family. So to me, it's about playing beautifully. That's how you can have impact on this world. Like you said, when you're on the call with the customer service person, I called up New Zealand Airline to try to get a flight home to Australia. Use my voice well, make them laugh. That's how you're changing the world. You change the world one conversation at a time. You change the world one song at a time. And even with your partner, I I see so often, I used to fall into the trap when I talked to my partner, when I talked to my wife, it's just, I actually stopped playing my voice beautifully. When I talked to her, it was just, oh, how's your day? How are you going? Oh, that's cool, all good. And then I realized, wow, the people I love the most, I'm putting, the, I'm, I'm putting such little effort. No, I need to up my game and 
So I just raised the bar for myself and said, this is an instrument. This instrument has immense power. So play it well or don't play it. So that's kind of my philosophy is that that's how I think about your voice is, and that's how I think about how you can actually change the world. One song at a time. I, I really love that, Vin, and, and it's something that's so become so near and dear to my heart because I, I feel now with this mes- message that I have to share, mm. it's my obligation and it's my duty to yeah. be able to get world-class at being able to deliver mm. that message in a way that it resonates from the same way that it is here, straight into yeah. their, their brain, and yeah. that there's no breakdown at all. And because... In your line of work, you must see people all the time that are so competent and capable, they just let themselves down from a communication point of view. Is there anyone yeah. super duper famous that you would say is the prime example of that? Yeah, well, there are many, but it's, it's very difficult to even try to <laughs> critique these people because they're amazing already. But let's look at an example, right? I, I love Elon Musk. I adore everything he does. I want to support him when I go back to Australia. I want to support, you know, his business and I want to get solar panel roofs and, and you know, support Tesla and everything as well. I, I really believe in what they do. I think he's going to change the world. Now, I think, I, I believe Elon Musk is one of those classic examples where he's 10 out of 10 technically brilliant, yet his ability to communicate is more like a 4 out of 10, a 3 out of 10. And please, again, this is not me going, look at me, I'm better than Elon Musk. Maybe I'm better at communication, but <laughs> heck, I cannot, I cannot change the world for like he can change the world. So I understand where, where I feel better. He, he destroys me leaps and bounds in terms of impact. But this is just looking at it from a communication point of view. So I give yeah. myself permission right now to critique this. Sorry, Elon. This comes from a place no, of love. You know, but, but, but this is, I think, I, I don't want to be afraid to talk about the truth when I truly see this as a communication teacher. And it's that his communication skills is at a four, but his expertise is at a, at a 10. Now, I believe if Elon spent a bit of time working on his ability to communicate more effectively, he's going to get a larger part of the market. He's got, I mean, look at Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is a prime example of someone who, who, because he worked on his communication skills, because he rehearsed, he was able to, like Apple now, kind of look at them as a company. Whereas I believe, I believe Tesla has the capacity, or Elon Musk has the capacity to 10x Steve Jobs because of his broad range of products and his, his brilliant mind. Only if he improved his communication skills a little bit. He doesn't have to drastically become a great communicator, but just improve it a bit. Take it from a four to a six or a seven. And I think that would hugely change the level of impact that he would have. He'd win more hearts and more minds. Whereas right now, his, he, he wins the hearts of the geeks, you know, like me. I, I love gadgets. I love these things. But I fundamentally believe if he worked on his ability to play his instrument, he would capture more of the market and have even more impact. And he's someone, regardless of his communication skills, so many people will already support him. But I don't want the majority of the people in the world to think, well, I'm the same. I'm technically brilliant. If Elon can do it, I can. Elon is a unicorn. He's a unicorn. He's, a, he's, he's one of the very few people in the world that was able to shine on technical brilliance alone. There are so many failed Elon Musk. 
so many that no one talks about because the only stories we hear about are the stories of success. We don't hear about the millions of stories of the failures all around Elon. Yeah. So it's dangerous when we look at that because most people might look at that and go, oh, I can become successful on technical skills alone. And that's just not true. That's just not true. You have to improve your ability to communicate your technical brilliance. Because if you can't communicate the value you have inside, people don't see it. They don't see it. So, I mean, that's an example, but every time I talk about that, it's hard because I, I adore this guy. I love everything he does. And, and it's hard to, to, to critique someone you admire so much, but as, that, as, a, as a communication teacher, oh, if he, just, if he just spent a little bit of time on this, wow. This Tesla is a and him... Yeah. This is a shout out to Elon. Here's your boy, Vin Jang. He will sort you out and 10x that mother flipper. Personally would spend time with you to, to, to work with you on this. All you want <laughs> is a Tesla. Wouldn't even charge it. No, I'll buy one because I, support, I want to support him. I just, and, and to me, that's why every year, Laban, I, I only coach two people a year. And I, I choose to coach CEOs because they're going to have the largest impact and I'll have the largest ripple effect that way. So for me, last year, I, I, I coached uh, a CEO of a billion-dollar business, Dave Long, who, who runs Orange Theory. And it was amazing because seeing the change in him, again, the moment he improved his communication skills, he inspired his people more. When, you insp- when you're able to inspire your people more, you get more out of your people. Instead of just asking to get more out of your people and demanding it, no, you realize as a leader, inspiration is how you 10x the results. Now, that's a huge part of being a leader is being able to inspire. And I think that's a huge ingredient that's missing from a lot of leaders is the inspiration component. That's why they hire motivational speakers. I mean, I think they've got to learn that they can do it too. It's so, it's so obvious uh, from the inside looking out now but for the layman, not to be confused with Laban, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you brought up a really great point in one of, your, one of the sessions with Stage. You're talking about a lot of um, foreign students that would say, you know, that, that their accent or English is a second language. And they would say, you know, does my accent impair my ability to be an effective communicator? And you said... No, well, look, I, I, thought, I thought you were going to repeat that for me. But... To me, I, I don't believe your accent is a problem. I, I think, to, to me, here's the thing. When is something a problem in communication? Something is a problem when it distracts people from the message. So if your accent is so heavy that it's distracting people from the message and they can't clearly understand you, then yes, it is a problem. Yes, it is a problem. And you have to articulate better. It's not about removing the accent. It's about improving the articulation. So for me, for you know, my, my, my fellow ethnics in, in the ethnic community, if you do feel like you've got an accent, don't think it's a problem, but rather understand you just have to improve your articulation. And a huge tip for that is move your mouth more. Because if you move your mouth more, the words you say are articulated with more clarity, which enhances the communication that you're having with people. I believe accents are beautiful. It's like flavors in food. If everyone sounded like me, man, what a bland world. <laughs> <laughs> Being a bit harsh, yeah. but I get, get, you, yeah. I get your point. Because yeah. I'm, working, I'm working with some, um, some mentees from Melbourne University. I signed up for this 
in February. And just as, as a suggestion from someone else, and I end up getting three women, two Chinese and one's Indian. And their English is really, really good. And one of the girls that I was talking to yesterday was like, I said, what do you want to talk about today? And we're doing this all via Zoom or whatever. And she's like, my CV. And she's like second, second year in a degree. And I said, hang on a second, hang on a second. I said, right now with what's going on in the world, I said, what's on your CV, in my opinion, doesn't mean jack. So we started talking about the importance of her being able to tell a story when she's mm. in an interview and, yeah, and, writing and, and weaving a story in her resume and just reframing it from another angle. And I said, if you can go in there and, and practice and like you taught about telling a, a really great story, it doesn't have to be that long, three minutes, you, you suggest is a good length for stories. Yeah, yep. You will connect with that person from a chemical bonding point of view through dopamine mm -hmm. and serotonin and oxytocin and they yep. will feel closer to you and when people feel closer to you they feel more comfortable and they're more likely to do things for you and i said if yep. they're interviewing 20 people and you're the one that tells this great story about why you're such a great learner and some experiences you've had some challenges you'll get the job every time well some, something i did early on when i was when i was still in university thinking i wanted a corporate job was I to, to get interviews and to get positions, I used to make a video and on my cover letter would be a link to the video. So I, I was one of the very few students that had my own website. I mean, I wasn't even a speaker at the time, but I had vinjang.com. So if I, was, if I was applying for you know, KPMG, I'd, I'd, I'd create my header, my, my, my kind of intro letter. And on there, I would say, I've made a very specific video for you. And in that video, when they click the link, it'll just be vinjang.com forward slash video for Susan because I knew Susan was going to review the, the CVs. And because she saw the unique link with her name, she'd type it. That's what my thinking was. And they do because they're curious. And then there's a video for them. And in that video, I share with them a story about who I am. And it's like a 30-second story that I share. But now I'm able to use my instrument. When you give someone a CV, understand that is, that is music on a piece of paper. It's music notes on a piece of paper. And when you look at music, it's a different feeling to when you hear the music. You know, do you get moved more by a movie or do you get moved more by reading the movie script? You get, you move, you, you're more moved by the words when they're spoken with emotion. So to me, a big tip I tell lots of university students is make sure when you can be creative, you know, change the color of the envelope of your CV, plus also have a video of yourself potentially sharing a quick story. All of these things give you, a, give you an advantage. And I, I love that you're coaching them to, to do stories because stories is how we deepen connections with people. Well, we went one step further because I love to share my passion of inspiring other people to become speakers because I think the more speakers, competent speakers we have, then the world's gonna be a better place, right? And so yeah. I said to her, name, She's Chinese, right? So I said, name your most famous inspirational Chinese female motivational speaker or whatever. And she, she didn't know anyone. Mm. And, and I said, what about you being a bilingual speaker mm. inspiring? Because she shared with me some, some personal details of some challenges that she'd gone through. 
Right. And, and I said, wow, like you've got a really powerful story. Then you can inspire a generation of not just women, but like anyone who hears that story, if you can learn to tell that story well. And she's like, her eyes are like this big at this point. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, come on, girl, let's get stuck into it. See, but that's, that's amazing. And, and it's so good of you to do that. It's, it's interesting. In, in the speaking industry, there's actually not many Asians at all, men or women. It's, it's one of those things where culturally, in our culture, we value technicians. You know, we, we, we value technical skill. And, and when we think about soft skills, we go, oh, we don't have time for this. Go learn chem- chemistry, math, physics, and, and, and math advanced. You know, it, we don't value, as a culture, we, we rarely value this, this public speaking communication skills. And I think it's, it's affecting the Asian community negatively because especially in the US over here, Laban, and, and even in Australia, there's not that many Asian people in leadership positions. And it's not that they're not capable. It's just because they haven't learned to use the leader's instrument. And when you don't use your voice well, people perceive you as someone who is not leadership material. It's incredibly crazy how well or how much people connect the voice with leadership capability. Yeah, it's, you've, nailed it. you've nailed it, Bennett. And I, and I hope that that's the take home from people seeing this, that if you can just improve it just a, a fraction more than what you're doing now, it'll just, yeah. it'll, it'll just snowball. I'd like to, to wrap this up pretty soon, Vin. I'm very respectful of your time. You've been incredibly generous. Yeah. But I'd, I'd love for you, for you to share with us, if you are happy to, mm. a story of your most embarrassing or humiliating experience in front of a lot of people, if you have one, <laughs> which I'm sure you do, yeah, yeah. apart from the fly yeah. one. Yeah, I, at the start of my speaking career, there was an event that I was going to speak at. It's called a showcase. And this showcase was where there was going to be six to 700 event organizers. If you nail these 15 minutes, your speaking career for the next two to three years is set. Because these were people who book speakers for events. And I worked so hard to, to get myself onto the showcase and get 15 minutes. And I rehearsed. Oh my goodness, hundreds of hours for these 15 minutes. And I got on stage, everything was going well. And all of a sudden, I felt something drip on me. And I was like, oh, it's, it's like raining or something. So I look up and I look at my shoes and for some reason it was dripping blood. I was like, what the hell? And as I was shocked by this blood that was dripping on me, I smeared my face and I, I didn't know why, but I smeared my face and I saw blood. And then I smeared my face again and I had a blood nose on stage. So blood went everywhere. I, you have no idea. I panicked so much that I didn't know what to do. But because I rehearsed so much already, I couldn't give up these 15 minutes. Because in my mind, I, I had the wrong priorities. I didn't know how to improvise my way out of this situation. I finished the 15 minutes with blood all over my face. <laughs> I... I didn't get booked for a single event out of that. What I, what I should have done was stopped, paused, asked the MC for help, excused myself, clean myself up and come back and do it again. Right. And because of my inexperience and my inability to improv and the panic that I felt, 
the whole experience was ruined. And it was not only embarrassing, it was so crushing. Because again, this was something that was going to make my career. And honestly, that, that slowed my career progression down like nearly a whole year because I didn't know how to ebb and flow and I didn't know how to improvise my way out of that situation. And man, that sucked. It was one, it, it's embarrassing in a negative, damn, what a shame way instead of an embarrassing, funny moment. It was an embarrassing, yeah, that was a shit moment. <laughs> oh man, I love it. It's brilliant. And it's terrible. <laughs> I also, you know, you're a very inspiring character and, and, you know, you're very open about the fact that you've, you've had mentors and you've learned from other people. For people that are sitting at home watching this now, what direction can you send them in terms of people that they should be being inspired from, not emulating or trying to be, but taking inspiration yeah. from? Well, I, I won't tell you who you should go for because, again, when the student is ready, the master will appear. You have to know what you want. So I think spend time soul-searching. Spend time experimenting. I mean, the, the story I, I always go to is, how do you know what your favorite food is? My favorite food is a dish in Malaysia called satay chaluk. I love that dish. It's one of my favorite dishes in the world. It, did, it took me up to when I was 27, 28 years old to discover this meal. And how did I discover that meal? I only discovered it by trying new things every time. So I'm, I'm the friend that goes into a restaurant that always has to try new things. And every time I go, I get disappointed 30% of the time. I'm that person that will eat food off your plate because I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have ordered this. It's crap. <laughs> but because I do that, I'm the person that reaps the reward of trying amazing dishes all around the world. Whereas I've got friends who stick to the same thing. So, so my thing to you, if you're young, even if you're old, don't lose that inner child. Keep trying new things. You're not meant to be an accountant for the rest of your life. What makes a book exciting is that you have many different chapters. And the only way to write riveting chapters is to first understand you have to keep trying new things. Otherwise, you always relive the same old chapter. Chapter one and chapter two, you relive it for the rest of your life. So that's the first thing I'd say. Never lose that inner child that wants to explore and continue to explore new things. But the second thing I'll say is something that comes from uh, an illustrator named Scott Adams. He, he created the cartoon Dilbert. And he has a wonderful way of thinking. He said, and I'll relate it to me, in that when I was just a magician, I was competing against millions of magicians around the world. And it's very hard to own that space. But when I became a magician that was also a speaker, there was only about 15 other people doing this around the world. And it was much easier to become number one in that space. And then when I became a magician who was a speaker that became a communication teacher, there was about three people in the world that had the same kind of thing. And then when I became the blonde Asian magician that was a speaker that taught communication skills, I was the only one that existed in this realm. And now that I add virtual trainings to that, there's no one in my space that is the same as me doing it. So the chances of me becoming successful and the chances of me becoming more financially successful and also career success increase dramatically. So think about how you can stack your talents. Don't just choose one thing. I think now the world we live in, it's important to choose a few things. I'm not telling you to do a hundred different things because then you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. But I'm asking you to be a master of a few and then find ways to combine it. And when you combine those things, not only do you make yourself unique, 
but you take yourself from potentially last in the race and you put yourself third or fourth and you own your own category. I think we're going to need a finish on that, Vin. It's some absolute pearls of wisdom. You've been a wonderful, wonderful guest. You can be found at vingang.com. If you are a beginner or a veteran of speaking, this masterclass, the virtual masterclass that you are running, uh, it's just absolute gold dust. You're relocating back to Australia later this year. Yeah. And there will be the, the, you'll be running the in-person virtual training, yeah. is that right? Yeah, I'll be running the in-person trainings as well. Yep, in-person and virtual. So just wanted to thank you so much for your time, Vin, and all his contact details will be listed in the box below on YouTube. And if you're listening, vingang.com. Vin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, brother. My pleasure, Levin. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I can't wait to meet you in person. <laughs> It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com